As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. Communism has caused tens of millions of deaths. Now, is that true or false? In your yeah, it's true. The Ukraine famine of the of the 1930s. The would you say that Ma- that was a result of communism, though, or yes. whether? No, that was that was deliberate policy of the of the Stalin government. I'm here with Professor Edward Stewart. Professor, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you're up to these days? All right. Um, I was born and raised in Houston, Texas, so I'm a native Texan. I teach uh, here in Chicago at Northeastern Illinois University. I'm mostly retired, but not retired from traveling, taking students to Europe and teaching an occasional online class. Um, And my main interest is uh, comparative economics, the subject of my great courses, series on capitalism versus socialism, and with particular emphasis on the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and Western Europe. Great. There's a few terms that need delineating because many people mix them up, such as social democracy, socialism, communism. Why don't you go through those three and disentangle them? All right. Um, It might be easier to start with the most extreme first, and that's communism, uh, especially as practiced in the Soviet Union and its former satellites in Eastern Europe, and to some extent that still exists in places like North Korea and, for all intents and purposes, Cuba. Co- full communism um, means the government ownership, the public ownership of all means of production and all economic resources except labor, and a central plan that directs all of the production uh, and distribution of goods and services within the economy. Socialism, social democracy, means more social control of the economy, but has some room for private enterprise and also has some room for political uh, diversity. Under Soviet-style communism, There's really only one political party and one political direction, and it's very centralized and non-democratic. So to contrast, Eastern, former Eastern European countries 
Uh, and to some extent, Kurt, we still have a little bit of that going on right now in Belarus. Um, what's happening in Belarus is that, to some extent, is a is a kind of a, a, a descendant of Soviet communism. The, the government still owns almost everything in, in the economy, and there is one political party and essentially one political ruler, Mr. Lukashenko, who is under some, uh, shall we say, protest uh, right now. Um, and so that's complete ownership and, and centralized political non-democratic control. Social democracy, socialism that, it ex that exists in Western Europe and Scandinavia means that the government has a large role to play in the economy and may own some parts of the economy, but there's large scope for private enterprise and political uh, contest and also some role for market institutions and, and market decision-making. Now, how does social democracy and socialism differ from the welfare state? Um, probably in the degree of, of ownership and social control. A, a welfare state, which um, we could describe to some extent as um, the United States or uh, Canada, means that there's mostly private enterprise, in fact, uh, preponderant private enterprise, but a lot of social redistribution and social safety net. So welfare state is probably the least intrusive uh, into a market economy and the least um, concerned with ownership of economic resources. When I hear people describe China, sometimes they'll call it state capitalism. What is state uh -huh. capitalism for the people who are listening? Yeah, that's China... Change uh, mixtures that's hard to that's impossible to categorize because in in one sense it has the hallmark of the Soviet economy in that there is one political party and centralized leadership and no um, political contest or or political democracy. However, unlike the Soviet Union, there is a relatively large private sector. In the, in the Chinese economy that produces goods and services for profit. And the owners earn profits and in some cases um, into billionaires. The, the difference between say the Chinese economy and say the Swedish economy or the French economy is that the French economy has guaranteed uh, property rights and political contests so that the people that own Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy, for example, uh, President Macron doesn't have the power, and it's certainly beyond the realm of French politics, for him to uh, unilaterally expropriate the owners of that company and retransfer the ownership back to the back to the state. That doesn't happen in China. It, Xi Jinping and the, and the Communist Party of China has the ability and the power to immediately um, socialize or take away the property of any so-called Chinese capitalist. So the state is more important in China than capitalism. So it's, it's a kind of a hybrid and um, state capitalism to some extent is a misnomer. State capitalism is probably a better description of Nazi Germany. 
where there was one uh, political leadership, one uh, political party, no democracy, but the, the, the government of Hitler wasn't about to and probably couldn't uh, nationalize Mercedes-Benz or Volkswagen or E.G. Farben or any of the capitalists that essentially put Hitler into power. Well, then what would you describe China as, a mixed economy? Um, I, w- I would describe it as uh, limited communism, right? Because the, the state, the Chinese government, still owns a large proportion of the Chinese economy and still directs the Chinese economy either um, directly through state ownership of enterprises, um, most of the big industrial enterprises, the steel companies, the coal companies, the power companies are owned by the Chinese government, um, or there are, there are directions uh, instituted through the People's Bank of China, the Central Bank of China, and to whom it lends money and to whom it doesn't lend money, those aren't made on the basis of monetary policy or uh, profit and loss. They're made primarily on the basis of directions from the standing committee of the Communist Party of China. When you talk to people who are more on the capitalist leaning end of the capitalist versus socialism, sorry, versus communism spectrum, they'll tend to say that to the degree that China is successful, it's because of their capitalistic tendencies, their free market proclivities, and then the deleterious aspects are because of the state. And then when you talk right. to the people who love communism or love socialism, they'll say, actually, right. capitalism is what's wrong with China. And to the degree they were successful, it is because of their redistribution of wealth or their more state-controlled properties. Right. What do you say? What do you think? Kurt, what do you see? Kurt, you've just described why comparative systems is a great subject for four and five hour bar conversations late into the night that uh, never reach a conclusion. And the answer I say to that, being a good professor, is that they're both right. right? That in some sense, what China had to do initially was to achieve its independence from Britain and the colonial power in Japan that occupied it, uh, educate the population, um, improve the basic infrastructure. But then in 1978, as I talk about in my great courses, uh, Deng Xiaoping began the process of allowing some kind of market forces to operate, initially with regard to agriculture, but then eventually let uh, Chinese business people um, exercise their entrepreneurial or uh, capitalistic, if you will, talents and build up very impressive um, industries. The, I will say, Kurt, the Chinese had a little bit of an advantage over the Russians because when the Soviets took over in 1917, Russia really wasn't a, a capitalist economy and there were no real Russian capitalists. It was a feudal economy run by the Tsar and the Orthodox Church. Um, the Chinese have the benefit of the Chinese diaspora, the Chinese business people all over Asia, in India, in Indonesia, in Vietnam, in the, in the Philippines, uh, and to some extent, even in, even in the United States. So there, there was a kind of entrepreneurial knowledge, uh, a kind of business acumen that the Chinese state, uh, the People's Republic of China, could draw on. Uh, in terms of, of human resources. And 
my view of economic development is that the most important resource in any success story in, in economics is people, right? You can have all the machines and all the gold and all the silver and all the whatever trees and water, but if you don't have um, a, a people that are motivated and educated, then you won't have any economic development. So the Chinese state um, kind of laid the foundation for a Chinese economy. And then the entrepreneurial uh, talent of the, of the indigenous Chinese and the Chinese diaspora were responsible for turning China into an economic powerhouse. Um, and I, I must admit, I, I've taught um, in Beijing on three separate occasions um, and, the, and the Chinese have, have always been for thousands of years um, very, very uh, favorable to education uh, and to learning. And so there's a, a kind of a native drive that's deep in their history for learning and education, um, which pretty much absent in my homeland of Texas. Uh, I see. Okay. So there's two advantages, entrepreneurial attitude, as well as a uh prizing of education. You also mentioned one time before that communism was in China for much less of a time than it was in Russia, right. which is like 70 yeah. years the Chinese, in Russia, the, 30 the Chinese, in China. The Chinese revolution under, under Mao happened in 1949, and Deng Xiaoping began his reforms in 1978. So that's less than 30 years of, of pure communism, whereas in, in Russia, Soviet Union started in 1979 and didn't end formally until Christmas Day of 1991. So that's 74 years of um, a, a really, really um, anti-growth economy in lots of ways. I'm going to be a little bit polemical here. In the socialist subreddits, on I don't know if you follow them on Reddit, but they like sometimes oh, to praise yeah. Mao and to praise yes. Stalin or at least defend them. And part of the reason is because they dislike capitalism and the people who are supporters of it so much that, and those people hate Stalin and Mao. Okay, you get the idea. One of, or here's a few, someone was saying this. Well, when it comes to Stalin, he deserves, like, obviously some hate because of what he's done, but also some praise because here's a bullet point list. He's turned an illiterate peasant society into a full nuclear superpower in just 15 years, raised the living standards of his people, raised the employment rates, raised the literacy rates, raised life expectancy, eradicated poverty and homelessness, eliminated food scarcity, gave his people free education, free healthcare, free housing, free electricity. Okay. That was quite a few bullet points. I know you have it on your end as well. Uh Why don't you go through them almost one by one? You can take them as a collective. Uh, uh, to be communist and right. tackle them. Yes. Um, the, the, one of the questions in, in um, Soviet studies, and that was one of my specialties in, in grad school at the University of Oklahoma, is try to, to try to separate Stalin from, from Soviet communism and the system that was put in place originally by Lenin and Trotsky and Bukharin and, and other leaders of the of the Soviet Communist Party, most of whom Stalin ended up eliminating. Um, and to, to ascribe agency to, to Stalin himself um, 
gives him way too much credit. Um, yes, there, there was uh, employment, full employment, but a large part of that full employment was prison labor, the gulag system. Uh, and most economists... Sorry, do you mind repeating that? It just cut off. Yeah. Um, a large part of the full employment instituted by Stalin was prison labor, the gulag system that Alexander Solzhenitsyn so graphically um, illustrated. And all economists will, will agree that prison labor, slave labor is the most unproductive kind of labor. So... The full employment. And why is that? Just because they're not motivated or they're exactly. disagreeable yeah, they're, people to they're, begin with? Yeah, they're, they're motivated to do as little as possible, right? To, to be as, as unproductive as they possibly can. To do the minimum is there, to, avoid, to avoid sanction or worse. Punishment. Is there not a way that you can incentivize them by saying, if you are a great producer of whatever it is, you have a lesser sentence or you get better treatment? Yeah, but that only goes so far. That's that's not the same kind of in, in incentive that you get for a, a, a private person having individual uh, satisfaction or group satisfaction that he or she voluntarily a, achieves. Um, so, yeah. That's, right, right, right. Okay, so now um, we're getting back to Stalin's regime. Education, uh, again, um, one of the one of the great um, successes of the Soviet system was. Um, it's math and science education, more or less, uh, although the Stalin system distorted education um, tremendously. Um, the, the biology uh, development was uh, distorted by Lysenkoism. If you haven't heard of Lysenko, Lysenko was Stalin's uh, pet biologist and really uh, destroyed the field of Soviet biology by insisting on kind of cockamamie, maybe harebrained theorems of of heredity and and, and environment. Um, and speaking as an economist, um, Soviet economics was um, not only worthless but anti-growth because you had to believe in Stalinism. You kind of an eclectic view of, of economics. The same thing with sociology, history, anthropology. It was all in the, in the service of the, of the state. So while primary and secondary education in the Soviet Union was pretty good, higher education was abysmal. Um, same thing with healthcare. Yes, you had free healthcare, uh, but for the common person, it was, it was pretty awful. Um, in the sense that um, it was um, hard to get, right? Um, if you Why wanted was it to, far, hard to get? Well, because there were not many physicians for ordinary people. The only real good physicians were assigned to treat Communist Party members. And physicians, um, one of the real problems with the whole Soviet economy is that, yes, everybody was guaranteed employment and, and guaranteed a salary, low salary. Um, there was very little incentive for anybody to produce anything or to provide any service. So if you were a, a physician in a, in a local clinic, uh, you got a salary, no matter how good you were as a physician, how many people you treated or how many people you didn't treat. So if you were, a, let's say, a mother and you're, and you're your daughter had um, some kind of uh, illness, like a bad cold or a flu, 
and the only way to get care and, and immediate care was to have some kind of bribery. One of the things that the Soviet economy generated was a whole system of, of bribery and favor doing to get around the planned nature of the, of the economy. Um, and Stalin also contributed to the death of tens of millions of, of Soviet citizens, first in the Ukraine famine of the, of the 30s, and then in his disastrous leadership at the beginning of the, of the Second World War, when he either executed or imprisoned most of the Soviet generals and um, made the mistake of stupidly trusting Hitler and the, the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, treaty that, whereby the Nazis uh, pledged not to invade the Soviet Union. And when the Nazis did invade the Soviet Union in September of 41, at first Stalin refused to believe it and essentially hid in his dacha. Um, and fortunately, there were a couple of Soviet generals left, especially General Zhukov, who managed to create some kind of defense, but not before um, the Ukraine was occupied by the Germans. The Germans went through Belarus and laid siege to Leningrad and, and Moscow and um, uh, killed at least a million Soviet soldiers in um, Stalingrad in 42 and 43. Um, so the, the legacy of Stalin is, is mainly dysfunction and, and blood and, and uh, genocide against his own people. Okay, what about Mao? Now, some of the defense against Mao or for Mao is that he lived. Yeah, he of also he was a follower of Stalin, and so there was a in the in the Great Leap Forward of the fifties, there was mass starvation, probably in the tens of millions. We'll we'll never know. And then the great proletarian cultural revolution in the in the late 60s and early 70s was a huge setback for the, for the Chinese economy because it, it destroyed the lives and careers of millions of scientists and intellectuals, um, the, the kind of people you need to build a, a, a modern, uh, efficient um, economy. The, probably the one positive thing I would ascribe to Mao is that he got rid of the Chinese addiction to opium, that um, one of the horrible things about British colonialism is that the, the, the British uh, carried out a military invasion of China to force the Chinese to buy opium that was being grown in India so that the British could earn some um, funds to pay for the tea that they were, that they were buying from, from India. And Chairman Mao and the Chinese Communist Party got rid of opium addiction and opium sales. Now, they did it, obviously, with a police state and military dictatorship and capital punishment and so forth, but they did rid the Chinese economy of, of its um, opium problem that was created by the, by the British colonial uh, powers. So did Mao lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty? That's one of the bullet points that I have from the social yeah, subreddit. Probably not. He, lift, he lifted, lifted might not be a right word. He guaranteed a certain amount of food. The Chinese expression is the iron rice bowl that every, 
every Chinese family was guaranteed a minimal amount of food, primarily rice. Um, so he, he might have cured some starvation in most of the parts of China. In order to do that, he essentially did what Stalin did in the Ukraine, which is mandatorily uh, requisition uh, rice crops from rice growing regions and redistribute it to the to the cities and the and the northern parts of China, um, and and created starvation in in the rice growing regions um, that he had expropriated their their crops from. When talking about capitalism versus socialism, you also mentioned that the North Korea versus South Korea is like a comparative economics professor's dream. Now, it's not, yes. a, it's not a double blind test because it would be strange if you didn't know which country you belong to. Right. <laughs> so, yes. but, it's a, so you, but you have a control. It's just not blinded. So I'm curious. Yes. Tell yes. us about and you, and, you, and you have a control group because the Korean Peninsula prior to the 1950s was essentially one country and one culture. The other uh, comparative systems professor's dream experiment was East Germany and West Germany. It was essentially one country, one culture. Um, and the really good thing about both the East Germany, West Germany comparison and North Korea, South Korea, is that when they were divided into communist and non-communist, the communist part was the rich part. So in 1949, when Germany was divided into communist East Germany and liberal capitalist West Germany, East Germany was the rich part. And the same thing with North Korea. North Korea, at the time of, of a division, North Korea was the rich part and South Korea was the, was the poor part. Um, in, in Germany, um, the region around Berlin and Leipzig and Dresden and um, those parts of what had been Prussia, that was the industrial part of Germany. That's where uh, the German war machine came from. And the Western part of Germany, especially Southern Germany, Bavaria, I sometimes insult my German friends, Bavaria, uh, Bavarians as the hillbillies of, of Germany. They were rural, they were poor, they were Catholic, they were illiterate, all of those things go together. Um, really, until the, the, 19, the post-war 1940s, uh, when the U.S. Army came to southern Germany and the Marshall Plan and the Conrad Adenauer government um, and the beginnings of the EU lifted southern Germany out of out of poverty into the terribly, terribly wealthy part of the world that it is today. South Korea, the same thing. In, in the 1950s, South Korea specialized their, their major products dish paste and t-shirts and hair. That South Korean women would grow their hair, cut it off, and send it to Japanese women for wigs. And that's what South Korea produced. You had steel mills and lumber mills and textile mills, and it was the rich part. So um, that was a that was to a jump nice in conclusion. to jump in that that's to say that because generally wealth begets wealth. When you have two states that are similar except for wealth, and then you follow them across time, and that flips, then right. and obviously only one trait was different. 
Yes. Then the only, the only about breakthrough that was different was the system. Right. 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 Now, but if it went the other way, where the wealthier state became wealthier, then that right. would say less because you're unsure yes. if it was okay. exactly right. If North Korea had stayed wealthy, uh, then the people who believed in communism would say, "Well, it's because of communism." But you could say, "Well, it's also because they were all they were wealthy to begin with." But the beauty for a comparative systems person is that you impose two different systems, and the capitalist system was imposed on the behavior on the, on the behind part. It was like you started a race and the winner was the was the guy who started ten years ten ten yards behind. You would have to say that he was a better runner. Okay, so then does that make it decisively clear that capitalism is as a whole better than communism? Or yes, is it still I would okay. say I would say yes. That what about socialism? Now let me let me go back, Kurt. Um, because South Korea is a is a great example of state capitalism. Right? Um, one of my favorite economists these days is a, a Korean economist who teaches at Cambridge. His name is Ha Jun Chang, and he's written several books on economic development. And he's also written a kind of a primer on economics called the ABCs of economics. And uh, from him, I learned um, the real story of the South Korean. Uh, development. And it wasn't private enterprise, free market capitalism, that all of a sudden there was no regulation, no government, and these industries just developed out of entrepreneurial zeal and private enterprise. Um, the South Korean government in the 1950s and the 1960s had a real, you could say, Hamiltonian, Alexander Hamilton, economic plan. And that plan was to use tariffs and quotas, economic protection, and state-directed development of industry. So the South Korean government told the Samsung company that they couldn't make fish paste anymore, that that was not going to be their primary right. uh, product. That's hilarious that Samsung used to grow yes. vegetables or it was a food company. Yes, and a very primitive company. Right? And, the, and the leadership a, a, to some extent, a military dictatorship in South Korea said, no, you are going to make electronics, simple electronics. And we will protect you. We will, we will put tariffs and quotas against Japanese electronics, German electronics, American electronics. And, and we will invest in, the Korean government will invest in education by producing engineers and scientists and metallurgists and so forth, and that's what you will do. The, the South Korean government told the same thing to Kia and Hyundai, um, that you will start to produce cars, and we will protect you from Japanese imports. Amer well, you didn't have to protect them from American imports in the 50s and 60s, as Americans were making horrible cars. But from Japanese imports and German imports, um, and the original... Um, Korean cars, the Kias and the Hyundais and the Daiwos that were produced in the 70s and 80s were terrible. You wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to buy them. But Korean, South Korean consumers had to buy them because they had no choice. And eventually, as we, as we know, Samsung and Kia and Hyundai and LG, uh, LG was actually two companies. It was Lucky was making electronics and Gold Star was making um, home appliances, and the South Korean government told them to merge and to re realize economies of scale 
And so LG now produces television sets and, and TVs, but also um, home appliances as, as, as well. So when you the, say the government told them to merge, are you yes. are you saying that they incentivized them to merge, or actually mandated them to merge? And yes, if they didn't, they, did. they would go to prison. They did both exactly. Um, they 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 said we will the the Korean government ran the monetary system, so we will lend you money to build an electronics factory. We will not lend you any money to make fish paste, and if you make fish paste, we'll put high prohibitively high taxes on it so nobody will buy it um so probably didn't have to threaten to send them to prison controls at its at its uh power the korean government forced for all practical purposes a change of direction for the large um, south korean um, conglomerates that now dominate their economy now how did north korea fare well the difference between Samsung as an automobile producer, and I'm not sure North Korea produces automobiles, but the people at Samsung, if they did a good job, earned profits, right, and had big incentives. The people that work in a, in a real communist enterprise, no matter what they produce or not produce, they get the same money, right? All they have to do As I talk Sorry, about repeat it, that, repeat that once more. All they have to do in a communist economy is meet the quota for that month, right? One of my favorite stories in my great courses course is about the, the Soviet shoe factory, right? That it's given a quota of producing 10,000 shoes. So it produces 10,000 size 10 left shoes, right? Because that's the easiest thing to do, to produce one size, one half and one color so the the, the that's capitalism, a true story that actually oh yeah. happened oh it happens it happened in all kinds of soviet enterprises and right? they don't get penalized for that no they don't get penalized they they might the the director might get replaced or there might be more directions but yeah no that's that's a, a lot yeah. of that of the, of the output it reminds me of the monkey paw where you have to be careful of exactly how you word what you wish for. It's like, I want, I want to become rich. And then you exactly. just become money yourself. Yeah. Well, and that's one of, the, one of the reasons why communist central planning systems break down is that it's in the Soviet Union, if you told one factory to produce 10,000 size 10 black boots and another factory to produce 10,000 size 10 white boots, then everybody's going to get boots. And if you have no shoes, no matter what size you are, you're happy to get a size 10, right? Maybe you're a size three or a size 11, but having boots is better than going barefoot, right? But once you get a certain level of, of, of development and for something as complicated even as a, as a little transistor radio, right? There are different components that have to fit together and it's and really hard to plan complicated production. So um, you need some kind of incentive. It could come from the state. It could come from private enterprise profits. But that's what drove, drives Samsung, LG, um, Kia, Hyundai, 
the Japanese did the same thing with their automobile industry. The first Japanese cars that were exported were horrible. But the Honda I drive today, I always tell my students, dollar for dollar, Japanese cars are the highest quality per dollar that you can possibly buy. Okay, so now in North Korea, you also mentioned that you believe it's going to have an economic collapse at some point. Yes, Why, what uh, makes and, you a say that? and a political collapse, because they all do. Right? It's just essentially a straight line projection, right? You would have predicted, you would have been um, accurate to say that at some time in the future, Belarus would have, a, would have a political crackdown or an explosion, and that's what's happening, right? Same thing did happen in China in 89 in Tiananmen Square, and it will happen again, right? It may not happen in Tiananmen Square. It may happen in Hong Kong. Right? But at some time in the future, China will have some kind of a political upheaval or um, an explosion. And the same thing will happen in, in, in North Korea. The, the wants and desires and wishes of the population will be so antithetical to the wishes and desires of the very, very small ruling elite that the system will break down. And you say ruling elite, but as far as I know, communism is supposed to be a system where everyone is equal. Yes. And you also mentioned that in the Soviet Union, the doctors had favorable service to the people who are members of the political party. Right. But then is that not real communism? No, that's not. Yeah. The real communism is kind of like, real communism is kind of like real free enterprise, right? Where there's no government and there's no monetary system and everybody is a is a voluntary trader, right? That exists maybe in heaven or hell, I'm not sure, but it doesn't exist on earth and, and never will, right? Um, but in the, in the, in the off-quoted phrase of George Orwell, we're all equal, some are more equal than others, right? So that in the Soviet Union, for example, the leadership up until the Gorbachev administration, the leadership were very old uh, men, right? Um, and it was a very small number. It was in the Politburo 12 or 13. And, and those people exhibited almost complete control over the entire economy right? and the entire society. Uh, same thing is in, in Belarus, the same thing in North Korea, more or less the same thing in, in China, the same thing in Cuba. Cuba will have a some kind of a of a political revolution at some at some time in the future, who knows when? Um, how do you the, go how ahead. do you think the Cuban system is doing? Um, in some senses, what's okay. your evaluation of it? Because some people will say it's great. There's free healthcare. There's no homelessness. Right. People have homes. People have education. People. The literacy rates are one of the highest in the world. And actually, the literacy rate is is the Achilles tendon of of dictatorial regimes because when people get they can read and they and they can realize that they don't live in paradise, right? That the yes, there's free health care, um, but, but it's, that would only be if they're able to see what's happening in the outside of the world, like East Germany yeah. did for West Germany. So, right. given that Cuba and, doesn't have freedom of press or freedom of inf not freedom of information, freedom with the yeah, freedom access. of information. There, there are. Um, Tourists. There are relatives of Cubans that live in live in Chicago, right? Um, and there's the internet these days. Um, 
And so it's almost uh, impossible to keep a place it is completely isolated, it is except if you're North Korea. Yeah, but even there, right? There are smuggled in cell phones, um, and so yeah, North Korea is probably, in some sense, Kurt, it may be the last, but also it could be one of the the sooner uh, implode just because the system is so dictatorial and so dysfunctional. Um, and so the, the most brittle, you, you would say. The, the advantage for Xi Jinping and the, and the leadership of the Communist Party is that since 1978, of the billion Chinese, somewhere between 100 million and 200 million have done rather well, right? Um, still half of, the, half of the population still lives in what may be called near poverty. Right. Very, very substandard housing, not much access to medical care, very limited access to, to jobs and and um, nutrition. Um, so um, it's, it's not a system, but there's a relatively large part of the population in China that's uh, well off and and if not supportive of the current China, communist Chinese government. Uh, at least uh, accepting of it, right? And what's the difference between an economic collapse and a depression? Depression simply means that economic activity um, declines. The system doesn't disappear. Uh, collapse means the system is uh, fundamentally changed. So when East Germany collapsed, the government-owned East German enterprises all disappeared and um, McDonald's and Burger King moved in. I, I remember being on a subway in East Berlin right after the fall of the wall and the Ninja Turtles were advertising Burger King. And I thought, aha. How, soon? How soon afterward? Uh, one month. December of, the, the wall came down in December, or excuse me, in no, November the 9th, 1989. And I was visiting a friend in East Berlin in uh, early December of 1989. And Burger King was already on the way. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. 
Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com slash everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. What are Galbraith's conditions for depression? Yeah, the... That's one of the books that I that I talk about in the Greek court. And one of the books that I, when people ask me, well, what should I read about economics and especially the stock market and collapses and things like that? I always recommend Galbraith's The Great Crash, right? Um, which is his analysis of the 1929 stock market crash. And still to my um, slightly biased view, the best analysis of, of why the stock market crash of 1929 occurred and, and why the subsequent Great Depression was so serious, right? So his, his five, and some of them we still have. Some of them don't, but some of them Sorry, we, some we, of the five we still have, you said. Yes, yeah. Okay. And we'll, I'll, I'll differentiate which ones we have and which ones we don't have. Uh, the first, first thing he mentions is uh, gross wealth and income inequality, which obviously we still have. And Just to butt in, were they able to measure the Gini coefficient back yeah. then? And is well, it comparable to what it is today? That's a good question, Kurt. No, they didn't measure the, well, they could have measured the Gini coefficient because Corrado Gini invented it in the 1930s. Well, so they could have, right? Now they have, can, they we can, do, do it. can we do an analysis like a record? Yeah, yeah, we can do it now. You can use um, tax records and, and income statements and, and wills and so forth. Uh, in fact, Kurt, that's just on a sidelight. That's one of the real advances in economic history research is that there are now really, really good sources of micro data that economic historians are using to analyze the 16th and the 17th century, especially in the British colonies of, of North America and, and looking at things like wills and baptismal records and uh, church uh, records and some tax records. And so there are Gini coefficients for pre-revolutionary um, America in the 1700s, right? So the Gini coefficients for the United States today have just hit what they were, just hit in the last year or so, what they were in 1929, right? Um, and the reason that wealth inequality damaging and so uh, predictive of stock market crashes 
is that the more money you have, the more risky you can afford to be, right? If you have $100, you really can't afford to lose anything because you need, you need all of that to pay for food, clothing, and shelter. If you have a couple of billion dollars, you can gamble three or four million in a risky stock. And if it goes bust and turns into zero, you know, you're really, you're really not gonna be harmed that much, right? So one of the things that extremely wealthy is they have a much higher appetite for risk, for junk bonds, for mortgage-backed securities of questionable value. They uh, have, so the country becomes more risky because those with wealth yes, take more risks? It's not because of risk. the perception of injustice from those who are on the lower no. end of the income distribution having riots no. and overturning no. the system? Okay. And the people at the lower end of the income distribution because since since they sorry the reason why I do the reason why I say yeah. that is that the Gini coefficient is highly correlated with the amount of crime in a given region. Mm-hmm. Crime isn't necessarily correlated with systemic change or political revolutions. It's I see. I see. Correlated with crime. The other end of the wealth distribution, poor people, in order to live, have to borrow money, right? Um, have to get loans. Have to take out payday loans or title loans on their car or their motorcycle, or as in the case of the, the U.S. Uh, Great Recession of 07-09, working class people took out home equity loans. Um, and when they, when they Sorry, start- I'm just going to butt in. Every time that I miss a, a word, it might not be missing for the people who are listening. It might just be that my headphone set cut off, but I heard you just say home equity loans, correct? Home, yes. Home okay. equity loans are what middle class and working class people in the United States in the early 2000s used to support their standard of living. It's what they used to, to pay rent, to buy cars, to buy television sets, appliances, to take vacations, right? So, but when those kind of people lose their job, um, and the, they default on their loans. Yes, right. They can't pay them back, and so they, the the bank that or the finance company that lent them money collapses. Goes bankrupt. That's the first thing. the The first cause of the of the stock market crash is that a lot of wealthy people put money into very risky investments. Um, the second thing that Galbraith structure. Corporate structure? Right. The nature of corporations, the ownership, the issuing of stock. One of the things that didn't exist in 1929 was the Securities and Exchange Commission. That wasn't um, instituted until Roosevelt's New Deal in 1933. And the Securities and Exchange Commission regulates sometimes well, sometimes not so well, the financial reporting and the information that publicly traded corporations um, disseminate. So, for example, um, as I think I mentioned in my Great Courses course, the only, the only company that I actually own stock in myself is Starbucks. Right? So as a stockholder, I get an annual report. It tells me how much money they make, what their expenses were, and how much money they have in the bank. And I have a pretty good feeling that those numbers are mostly accurate. Um, now, I think for Starbucks, they're mostly accurate with Howard Schultz, the founder and the CEO, but 
even if he wasn't Sorry, they're a good mostly, They're mostly accurate because of Howard Schultz. Yeah, the CEO. He's a good guy, right? Um, but even if he wasn't a good guy, the Securities and Exchange Commission, on pain of imprisonment, um, audits those reports and makes sure they're accurate. So when you buy stock in Starbucks or Google or whatever, you're relatively assured that they're um, reputable companies and what they say they're doing, they're, they're doing. Now, there are lots of uh, exceptions to that. Companies that facts or the regulation is very uh, lax, as it was in the early days of the George W. Bush administration. Um, in the 1920s, there were companies issuing stock that the only thing the company had was the paper that they issued stock on, and they had all kinds of fictitious um, assets. Um, and Mr. Ponzi, there really was a Ponzi behind the Ponzi scheme, was selling real estate titles to land in Florida that he didn't own, right? So people were buying real estate in Florida that didn't exist, right? Um, so that kind of corporate criminality was widespread in the 1920s. Right? Okay, so you said that Galbraith's first condition is the Gini Wealth inequality. Economic, right. And yeah. then the second, the second is corporate was structure. corporate structure, well, lack about, of regulation. Okay, lack of regulation. Now, it seems like yes. today we don't have that. We have regulations. Yes, exactly, which is one of the things we, it, that's going to prevent a kind of the stock market crash a la 1929, right? We we'll right. still have stock market volatility, and certain stocks will collapse for economic reasons, not for criminal reasons. Like for example, right now, Kurt, when I – that's just a scratch. That's not a sign. Uh, when I when when people ask me about uh, what stocks to buy, the first thing I say, Kurt, is that if I really knew what stocks to buy, I'd be on my yacht in the Mediterranean. I wouldn't be here in Chicago in my little two bedroom apartment. But in in general, these days, um, because of COVID, right? Airline stocks, um, hotel stocks, cruise line stocks are not the thing to buy not because the cruise lines or the airlines have done anything criminal or they've been misrepresenting it. Their business is just bad. Right? Um, the vicissitudes of life. Yes, exactly. The third, the third cause, according to Galbraith, was the, was the lack of regulation of banks and, and the lack of, of limitations on what banks could do. In the 1920s, banks themselves could buy stocks. And so if banks were taking my money and buying stock in a worthless corporation and that corporation disappeared, then my money disappears too. There was no Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. The Federal Reserve had very, very weak supervisory powers. Um, and so today we have deposit insurance and, and active monetary regulation by the Federal Reserve. Okay, we're still on... Point number two, that is the corporate Point structure? number three. Okay, we're on Banking point. structure. I see, I see. Corporate, then banking structure. Yeah. And, and of those two, the banking system is more important than, the, than individual corporations. Because if a bank goes, then not just one corporation is hurt or one group of stockholders or employees, but the entire uh, economy that that bank serves. So- Banking uh, supervision 
is very important. And it's one of the reasons why than the United States in the Sorry, Great it's one of the recession. reasons that Canada what had a much better experience during the Great Recession because Canadian banks were much more regulated and limited in terms of their mortgage lending, right? Um, and unlike American banks who were lending all kinds of money and buying mortgage backed securities, when real estate crashed in the United States in 07, then the banks would have crashed also. And there would have been bank runs without the Federal Reserve and without our Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Um, so banking structure is critical, right? The fourth um, cause of Galbraith, and this is one that we have today, are large balance of payments, um, deficits, and international debts. So, And is it worse today than it was back in 1929? No, it's about, it's, it's a little bit less serious, but um, un, unlike 1929, when the United States was running a big trade surplus, right now the United States is run, running a big trade deficit, and a lot of U.S. government debt, corporate debt, is held by Chinese, Japanese, Germans, uh, countries that have large trade surpluses. Um, and those trade surpluses and deficits um, cause unemployment in the United States. Um, one of the, I think one of the, the key variables that explains the Trump election in 2016, and this has been done by political scientists and economists using census data and Federal Reserve data, those counties in the United States that had manufacturing that was adversely affected by Chinese imports voted 80 to 90 percent for Donald Trump. So small towns, rural areas, medium-sized cities that had one or two businesses that were put out of business by Chinese imports, those were the, those were the places and are the places that are the most Trump favorable parts of the American electorate, right? Um, and so that, that kind of political uh, division um, still exists, right? Right, now to, quick, to take a quick aside, you mentioned that in South Korea and a few of the other Asian tigers, they had a uh, protection on the infant industries in the form of right. tariffs. Now, do you yes. see what Trump is doing with tariffs on China as akin to that? Do you see it as salutary? No, no because the U.S., these aren't infant industries. These are declining industries. So protection on things like steel, right, in the United States. Um, steel industry is not an infant industry. It's a, it's a in many ways, it's a declining industry. Um, and also... We're in a much more complicated economy. Steel isn't just something we produce in the United States. It's also something we use, right? So manufacturers in the United States who produce appliances, who produce automobiles, who produce aircraft, uh, use steel. So putting the tariff on steel makes their cost of production higher. Um, and so, yes, there may be a few steel jobs. Trump's tariffs, but there are lots of manufacturing jobs that disappear because 
automobiles and appliances and aircraft are cheaper other places where they don't have uh, tariffs on, on steel, right? Um, and plus, what always happens is that uh, in this day and age where there's much more communication and, and knowledge, when we put tariffs on Chinese products, the Chinese put tariffs on our products. When I was an undergraduate in the 60s taking my first international econ course, um, my professor, Professor Sailors, always loved to tell stories about the chicken war. And the, and the chicken war was between the United States and the European Union. The U.S. It wasn't a war of chickens? Yeah, it wasn't chickens fighting chickens, no. That's what I first thought. I thought, oh, my God, we're going to have some bloody chickens and, you know, some real feathers flying. But the United States, believe it or not, still is a major exporter of frozen chickens, right? And a lot of chicken farmers in Europe were upset because they were uh, being harmed by the chicken imports. So the European Union put a big tariff or a quota on, I forget sure which, on U.S. chickens, right? Um, so the chicken farmers in America went to the U.S. government and saying, we're being harmed by the European Union, uh, discriminating against our chickens. And the U.S. government put tariffs on Danish cheese and um, French wine, right? We always pick on French wine. So there were arguments back and forth, and eventually it got uh, settled somehow the Europeans agreed to buy a few more American chickens, and we agreed to buy a few more uh, pounds or kilos of Danish cheese. So the problem with tariffs these days is that they always generate uh, retaliatory effects. And I always, when I teach courses in international trade theory, students always bring up the point, well, tariffs will, will protect American jobs. And yes, they'll protect some American jobs, but the corollary is that they'll also cost some American jobs uh, as well. And, and that gets me to Galbraith's fifth point, which we don't have today, fortunately, and that is, and that is a much better knowledge of international economics. Um, in the 1920s, um, the, with the stock market crash, there was a belief that, that the federal government should always balance its budget and the Federal Reserve should only do uh, policies that restrict the money supply and fight inflation. So, when the Great Depression started in 1929, raised taxes and cut spending. Sorry, repeat that. The Great Depression started in 1929. Federal U.S. federal government raised taxes and cut spending to balance the budget, and the Federal Reserve decreased the money supply, which, of course. All of those things do nothing but make a recession worse. Right? What happens when there's a recession or a depression is that the money supply should increase, interest rates should go down, the federal government should cut taxes and raise spending, run deficits, and expand aggregate demand to compensate for the declines in private demand. And that, all of that knowledge we owe to John Maynard Keynes and his followers. It was Keynes who, in the general theory in 1936, laid out perfectly the theory for counter-cyclical monetary and fiscal policy that most all governments around the world these days use to fight um, recession and depression and to try to control inflation at the other end. 
So do you see the American economy as going or headed towards a recession, a great recession akin to the 1929? Um, I'm a little bit worried, Kurt, these days because um, when, the, when COVID first hit in March, um, the Federal Reserve did and still does uh, um, execute um, very beneficial and intelligent monetary policy. And Congress, the U.S. Congress, in an amazing display of speed and intelligence, passed what was called the CARES Act. Sorry, the CARES Act? Yeah. And that provided for the $1,200 checks that went out to everybody, the expanded unemployment benefits, the, the subsidies to businesses, and, and, and all of that served to mitigate the recession effects of, of COVID. Now, a lot of those fiscal policies, the, the uh, budget transfers that expanded unemployment benefits, federal spending, federal uh, outlays in the United States, those are all set to, to end either this month or next month. And if they, if they end without being extended or replaced, then um, there is a fear that the United States could go back into a more severe recession than the one we're already in. And is it going to end, or do you see signs of it being extended? Uh, I don't see signs of it being extended. I see signs of the... Sorry, sorry, you see signs of what? The Republican leadership in the Senate and the, and the White House and the Democratic leadership in the House of Representatives not agreeing on, on much of anything in terms of what the next um, fiscal policy should be. So in, un, unless they can come to some kind of an agreement, then um, they won't be extended and times will be tough for millions and millions of Americans, tougher than they are now. Now, forgive me for this somewhat rudimentary and maybe sophomore question. I'm just a foolish physicist. Think of me yes. as that. Okay. Does not the distribution of money, let's say $1,200 checks to virtually everybody, then lead to inflation a few months, if not years down the line? Um, probably not for all kinds of reasons. Uh, one is the inflation occurs mainly when the, the, the simple – uh, formula is when there's too much money chasing too few goods, meaning that production is at a maximum and there's still an increase in the money supply occurring. The The main problem in the U.S. economy is not that there's um, insufficient uh, uh, production, um, there's insufficient demand. There are all kinds of factories that are shut down, restaurants that are, aren't operating, hotels that aren't occupied, airplanes that aren't, uh, aren't uh, having passengers. So the additional money will simply fuel production that should be there. There's not going to be shortages of airplane seats or food or hotel rooms or anything else that might be um, in demand. And the, Okay, well, it sounds like that there's less of a demand in certain sectors but there's right. greater demand in some sectors and no change in demand in other sectors. So right. when people get money, if they spend where there already is high demand or where there's no change in demand, 
then it doesn't go towards. It actually grows to a little bit. I mean, there's a little bit of price pressure in the U.S. right now. I'm not sure about Canada. My guess would be the same thing. There's a little bit of price pressure in grocery prices, right? So people are not going to restaurants. So restaurant prices are either going down or not going up. But grocery store prices, because of the increase in demand, uh, are, are going up. But people aren't, uh, at least after the initial wave of the hysteria and stockpiling, um, people aren't spending a lot in grocery stores. They're just buying the necessities. So there's not some huge increase in demand for food at grocery stores. There's mostly people can afford the necessities, and that's all they're, all they're buying, right? When it comes to hyperinflation, you mentioned that you just cancel the currency, that'll lead to a depression, but then that also leads to a decrease in the prices. Now, right. why the heck are you canceling a currency when there's hyperinflation? And then second, when you say there's a decrease in price, to me, you need a currency to evaluate a price, but you just canceled it. So I'm unsure how that happens. Okay. Best example, um, I'm, in, I'm in Bucharest in Romania in 2001, right? And the new Romanian government, is printing money like a bandit, right? Just printing money and printing money and printing money. And the inflation rate is 100 or 200% a month, right? Uh, my first meal in, in, in Bucharest, uh, I get the check and it's for 600,000 Romanian lei. And I go, oh my God, this is terrible. And then I realize that I'm getting 25,000 Romanian lei to the dollar so the check is really about $14. That's for me and the guy who glommed onto me as my personal driver and, and city guy. So we had a very lovely meal and wine and cognac and what have you. Okay. Incredibly um, cheap. Incredibly cheap and literally baskets full of money, right? That's pretty much worthless, right? So what the Romanian government essentially does and – the Yugoslav government uh, did this, or the governments in the constituent republics. Soviet government did it in uh, 98, is they just canceled the money, right? They say the money that was issued 10 years ago or dollar bills or whatever that have this date on them, they're no good anymore. Even and the money running, that's in the bank that's virtual? There's no virtual money in those kind of economies. It's all paper money, right? Um that's no good, right? And so whatever money you have in your little hand, right, it's not worth anything. So that, that money goes away, right? You either wallpaper your bedroom with it or light cigars or use it for bookmarks or whatever. This right? sounds horrible because it people are saving. Right. I have, I, have, I have some leftover Russian rubles that were issued in 1993 that were nullified in 1998. So fortunately, I don't have very many. But when I lived in, in Russia in 94, I accumulated some Russian rubles from 1993, and now they're no good. So um, for those of your listeners who somebody's going to pay you in Russian rubles, you want to check the date of those of that paper currency, 1993, that it's post-1998. Right? So yes, it's it's very harmful, especially for ordinary people who don't have access, who don't own gold mines or silver mines or uh, factories or what have you. So the money goes, money is canceled and the government uh, issues a new currency, has new pictures on it, it's a new color, 
And instead of maybe 100 million of these pieces of paper, they only issue a million, right? So what used to cost 25,000 now only costs 25 because that's the, the ratio of the amount of old currency to the amount of new currency. So you're able to exchange your old currency for the new currency? No. Nope. So you just have to start from scratch? Start from scratch, right? You get, if you're working or let's say you're a student and you get a little bit of a stipend, instead of getting 50,000 of the old currency, now you get 50 of, 50 of the new currency, right? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to give you some broad platitudes and you can tell me what you think of them. Okay. Communism has caused tens of millions of deaths. Now, is that true or false in your yeah, estimation? Yeah, that's true. We, we, we talked about that, right? The, the Ukraine famine of the, of the 1930s, the Would you say that Ma that was a result of communism, though, or yes. whether... No, that was, that was deliberate policy of the, of the Stalin government to starve the Ukrainian population in order to feed the Russian population. It's one of the, one of the arguments these days of enmity between Ukrainians and Russians um, because of the history of that, of that famine. That was, it was engineered by the Soviet government under direct orders from Stalin to requisition food from Ukrainian peasant farmers uh, to feed the industrial working classes in Moscow and Stalingrad and Leningrad and so forth and, and created mass starvation. Okay, There's some here. really new, some really good new books on, on that, uh, one by a historian, Ann Applebaum, uh, who documents and, and goes through the, uh, the statistics uh, that establishes that uh, the deaths from the Ukrainian famine were somewhere above 10 million. Okay, here's another phrase or another sentence. Capitalism has lifted more people out of poverty than virtually any other economic system. Um, probably true, right? Um, but done so at, at, at great cost, um, lives as well as um, opportunity that most people, I'd say the majority of people in societies that move from feudalism to capitalism benefited, right? Um, but You'd have to say the children that were put to work in the textile mills of Birmingham and Manchester, England, probably didn't benefit from capitalism. Um, but their great, great, great granddaughters and grandsons probably probably did. Um, the the development of we have this discussion in the United States right now. It's very important discussion around the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. Capitalism in America was essentially financed by slavery. That, yes, capitalism in America created industrial jobs, created uh, a manufacturing center, a transportation center. But the initial investment, the initial funds that, that paid for that came from the export of cotton from the South to England, to Germany, to the Netherlands. Um, and with the money that was earned from cotton exports, then Northern manufacturers could buy capital equipment and technology from the English and the British and the, 
and the, and the Dutch. So that American capitalism has lifted along into the Sorry, Ameri- class, American capitalism. Lifted um, people in the working class and the middle class into a decent standard of living, but at the, at the lives and the and the and the freedom of millions and millions of African Americans who literally paid for it. Right now, is there a way of measuring the amount of deaths caused by capitalism in the same way that some people spout off deaths caused by communism? Sure. Yeah, and um, that's that's part of the discussion of, of reparations and slavery in, in in the United States, and probably. Um, death might be a bit too strong, but you would have to say life expectancy. One of the, the, the actually the book that I use in my European economic history course uh, looks at life expectancy in Europe over 2,000 years from the Roman Empire up until the, the 20th century. And the advent of urbanism and capitalism, if you will, market societies in Europe in the 15th and 16th century dramatically reduced life expectancy for most of the population. Because in the 600s, 700s, 800s in Europe, people lived and people were farmers, agricultural producers, lived outside, right? In the 1400s and the 1500s, when urban societies and urban capitalism was being developed, had people getting close together and they didn't wear masks and they didn't social distance and they bred plague and typhus and cholera and dysentery and died relatively young. Right? And, and that life expectancy increase really didn't happen until the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, that capitalism eventually, with social uh, democracy and the provision of clean water and um, public health uh, programs uh, raised people out of um, disease and death at an, at an early age. Okay. Now, you remember, think of me as a foolish, someone who just has a physics and math background. Okay. Part of what... Now, the, should, Kurt, I should tell you a joke among economists, right? Economists have physics envy, Right. So there's a there's a joke that if you're a really bad and and if you believe in reincarnation, right? So if you're a really bad economist, when you die in the next life, you will come back as a sociologist. If you're a really good economist and you're highly educated and and technically proficient, die in the next life, you'll get to come back as a physicist. All right, All right so, cool, cool. Well, maybe I was a good economist. I don't know. We'll yeah, see. yeah. Or maybe there you I go. don't. Maybe it's a bad one. Part of the problem that I had when I was making this previous documentary called Better Left Than Said about the right versus left or extreme left, what delineates moderate left from extreme left is uh-huh. of definitions in math. Well, that's my background. It's like definitions are clear cut. Right. Here's what right. a topology is. Here's what yes. a fiber bundle is. Okay. Yep. There's no ambiguity. Now, when it yes. comes to what, what defines socialism, what defines communism, what defines Marxism, it's, right. it's, all, it's amorphous. It's indistinct. However, when it comes to capitalism, there does seem to be generally more agreement, and it seems to be, even from the left and the right, it seems to be centered on three that I could find. It was like private property, profit motive, and voluntary exchange. Yes. Now, most people would agree on that. Now, given that that's 
what capitalism is defined by, can we say that the child labor and the slavery is part of capitalism given that children can't consent, so there's no voluntary exchange, and right. slaves are not voluntarily being slaves? I mean, yeah. that would be strange if some voluntarily said, let me be right. a slave. Yeah. So then, then can those ills be attributed to capitalism or some yes. bastardization of capitalism instead? Right. And if you, if you really believe in a free market economy, then you should be able to sell your children and buy and sell slaves, and you should be able to um, form uh, criminal gangs and, right. Okay, so then is it true that those ills that you mentioned, which are slavery and the decrease in life expectancy for the slaves as well and child labor, is that a result of capitalism or something else? And what would you call that something else? Now, I would say that that's a result of the development, early developments of a market economy, of a capitalist economy. That that's part of its origin, right? That maybe its original sin is that yes, there were many, many people that suffered in the beginnings of capitalism in the factory system, in um, resource uh, extraction. I mean, just think of what coal miners went through uh, before there was any kind of safety legislation or uh, protection from all of the diseases that they, that they got from um, their occupation, right? Okay. And, and, the, and the capitalist mine owners re resisted any kind of regulation because they said that's government interference and that's socialism and that's, you know, you're, you're restricting my rights as a mine owner to tell my, the workers that, you know, have agreed to work for me. Uh, the problem is if you're the if you're the mine owner in some hill part of West Virginia and you're the only employer, then your employers don't have a they don't your employees excuse me don't have a voluntary choice to make for the exchange of their labor. If they're not coal miners, then they don't and they then they don't eat, they don't live. And that's that's an argument that I hear plenty from the those on the extreme end of the left and even the left generally is that you say you have freedom, but you don't have the freedom to not work because, and you don't have a freedom in the amount of jobs that you can choose from, given that if you don't choose from one of these select few, because you yeah. have a certain amount of intelligence or expertise or whatever. Yeah. And then there's the, the, whole, the whole question of wealth inequality is that... There's the what? The question of what? Wealth inequality and, and, equality and, and the, the opportunity uh, equality that Obviously, in a country as, as economically um, unequal as the United States, there are certain people, certain part of the population is born with lots of freedoms, right? They have the freedom to go to a, an excellent college. They have the freedom to get excellent health care, excellent nutrition, excellent housing. And then there are people born not too far from where I am here in the city of Chicago who were, who were born with no opportunity for a decent education, decent health care, decent housing, decent nutrition, um, minimal protection uh, from, from crime. And so you can't say that, that um, freedom is an absolute or freedom is something that should, that should take precedence over any other kind of social policy or economic policy. Yeah, there's actually two different types of freedom. And I think that part of the whole discrepancy between the left and the right, when both are saying we just want more freedom, right. is they're using different kinds of freedom. Yes, so there's positive exactly. and negative. I don't know if, you've, if you're aware right. of the plot. Okay. Yes. So one is like, just for the people listening, one is positive. I believe it's positive is 
positive yes. freedom is someone has a gun to your head. You're like, yes. I don't have that. So I have positive freedom. Yes. And the negative freedom is, is that you have more choices or that right. you're freak from even social conditioning. Right. Like the expression of your complete individuality, if that even yes. exists. Okay. You yes. spoke of physics envy. Let's talk about yeah. that black envy versus white envy. Yeah. In Russia. Right. Can you delineate yes. to the audience what those are? <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's one of the reasons why for Russia, especially it's, it's been a very difficult transition to some kind of a market economy, some kind of a, of a commercial economy to use Adam Smith's phrase. Um, because under feudalism and under communism, any kind of transaction was, a, was almost always a zero sum game. If I got something, it means you didn't, right? Um, one of the hardest things, when I was teaching in Russia, one of the hardest things I ever tried to explain, and I was never really successful in, in doing this, was explaining and Around what, what year was this that you were 90, teaching in Russia? 94. Uh, was, ex was explaining to them the concept of a Pareto optimal transaction, right? That's a fancy phrase. That's any transaction where you benefit and I benefit, where both of our utilities rise, so when I go into my Starbucks every morning, I walk in the park with $2.50, and Starbucks happily accepts it, and they give me a grande whole milk misto, which makes me much happier than holding on to the $2.50. So we both, we both benefit from the exchange, right? Russian, Russians, ordinary Russians had no experience with that, no, no experience. Their parents had no experience, their grandparents. Their great grandparents had but no with bartering. Is there not that a Pareto improvement there? Um, but they didn't really even barter, right? They were, if the 90% of the Russian population until the revolution were serfs, were peasants, right? And they were given a certain amount. And anything more that, than they were, than they expected, that meant the landlord got less, right? Uh, or if one group of peasants got more, it meant the other group of peasants got less, right? Um, so it was very much a, a, a static economy, right? Tolstoy writes about this in, in Anna Karenina a lot. Um, I, I had to buy a copy of Anna Karenina when I was in the Soviet Union because one of the things the Soviet Union made you do... Sorry, sorry, it just cut off, at least for me. You, you had to buy a copy of Anna Karenina? Yeah, well, I, I had to buy something because when I was in the Soviet Union in 85, um, the Soviet Union, they made you buy Soviet currency when you went in, but you couldn't take it out. Okay? So I had all these Soviet rubles and I didn't know what to do with it. And on the last day in Moscow, I found a bookstore, right? And the bookstore had a copy of Anna Karenina and I hadn't read it. And my knowledge of Anna Karenina was that it Right? It was about Anna Karenina having an affair with Count Vronsky and so forth. Right? So I bought it. There's no sex and violence in Anna Karenina, but there are hundreds and hundreds of pages about serfdom and social issues and economic progress and all kinds of things like that, which turns out to be, at least for an economics professor, just as exciting as sex and violence, right? That's a horrible thing to admit. But so... The, the, the Russian soul that went through feudalism and, and 
orthodoxy and so forth had no knowledge of voluntary exchanges or market exchanges. Um, And so um, having an economy where people make a profit means that to the Russian, they're taking advantage of somebody, right? Um, And so that generates black envy. Black envy is if somebody does better, I want them to do worse, right? So if two Russian farmers, right? And one of them has two cows and the other one only has one cow, right? So black envy is when I, I'm the farmer with one cow, right? And I'm envious of my neighbor who has two. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. And jealous, right? And so if I have black envy, then I, I want one of his cows to die, right? So he's worse off and and back to and we're back to equal, right? White envy is I'm envious and jealous that he has two cows, but the way I'm going to solve that is I'm going to try to figure out how to get another cow myself so that I don't diminish his success, but I try to, to equal it, right? Or at least get on some kind of a par, right? For most of Russian history, and for the initial decade or so after the fall of communism, there was lots of black envy. So if somebody in a Russian town at a successful little shop, right? Quite often that shop would be firebombed or looted or somehow uh, destroyed because that person was rising above everybody else in the in the village or the or the town. Right? Um, that's, black every, envy. that's black envy. Every society has some of that, but in 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 Russia it was in some ways, the predominant cultural value with regard to quality and inequality. Now, is black envy something that you find pervasive in communist societies? Yes, right. Do you think that's because of the underlying Marxist philosophy that it somehow promotes or says that... It, It promotes an ideal of equality, and but the people in the society see that 
there's a there's cognitive dissonance between the ideal and the actual nature of society. That the people that run the communist society, Mr. Lukashenko in in Belarus in Minsk, um, Mr. Brezhnev in the Soviet Union, they actually they're not equal. They live much much better. Right? When East Germany collapsed, one of the one of the real big scandals was how well the East German Communist Party leadership had lived. They had, there was a compound outside of Berlin that had a special hospital, special grocery stores, special cinema, special uh, swimming pools, um, and the, many of the East Germans who had internalized this belief that we're all equal, that that's what separated us from those greedy capitalists in, in, in West Germany is that in East Germany, we had solidarity and everybody else was more or less equal. Certainly some people got a little bit more, doctors got a little bit more than truck drivers, but it was a difference of maybe the doctors got 400 marks a month and the truck drivers got 350 marks a month. But when they saw how well the, the leadership of the SED, the the East German Communist Party had been living and how hypocritical they were, then that's what, that was one of the things that completely, for most East Germans, um, invalidated their belief in, in communism. Right? And most of those people went from believing in communism to believing in Ronald Reagan and Milton Friedman. That, um, that any kind of social control was bad. So we're going to go to the opposite end, right? And now would you classify Germany as extremely capitalistic or mixed? Mixed, but um, in, in, in some ways um, rather, rather capitalistic um, because most of the resources, most of the productive resources in Germany are owned privately. Um, um, BMW is owned privately. Russia is owned privately, um, and there are large numbers of German companies, small manufacturing companies, retail companies, so forth, that are privately owned, often by individual families who are extremely wealthy, right? But there is much more of a, what, what the Germans call it, social market. They call it what? Social market Wirtschaft. It's all one word, right? Germans pull everything together and make one word out of seven or eight. Right? So it's, they call it a social market economy, which means that every German citizen has health care, has education, has some minimal standard of, of living. But the, but the income inequality in Germany is quite significant. Right. Something I was thinking about is people like to praise Sweden. And when you look at Sweden's trading partner, the largest is Germany. And so Uh if if some people say who are on the left end will say that it's because of Sweden's socialistic policies that they're so wealthy or that they have such high standards of living, but they're predicated on on a a large part some other nation, which is capitalistic like Germany. So it's not like you can view them in a vacuum. Right, right, yeah. What are your biggest differences? I'm going to be talking to Richard Wolff soon. And what are your biggest differences and disputes with Richard Wolff? Um, probably more of a more favorable to markets and and private enterprise for at least a certain sector of the economy, consumer goods and services. Um, 
and less um, favorable to outright government control or government ownership. I, I think there are certain things that governments ought to own, um, like in the United States, the Postal Service, right? <laughs> uh, and probably um, public um, health care. Um, I think the American health care system is, is, is much too capitalistic and much too private enterprise and needs to be much more socialistic, if you, if you will. Um, and so, but on a, on a spectrum of left to right or, or social Democrat or, um, kind of liberal capitalist, I'm probably closer to liberal capitalist. So if you had one question for Richard Wolf, I'll take this and I'll ask him, what would it be? Um, if you were advising newly elected president Biden, right, what would be the first um, social or political uh, policy or law that you would enact. Fix the American economy. Great. So, Professor, where can people find out more about you? Um, they can go on the Greek courses. Uh, right, repeat find... that once more. I, I don't know if it's me that's cutting off. I think it's, I think it's my computer. Uh, the Great Courses, all one word, dot com. Uh, and there they'll find my video course on capitalism uh, versus socialism. And then uh, it also has my email address and website. And so it's the best place to go. Professor, thank you so much. Have a great my day. My pleasure. And the problem with economics and the problem and the reason that economics can't be physics is that lots of things in economics you can't measure. Right? There are some things you can measure, but there are lots of things you can't measure. Freedom you can't measure. Um, individuality you can't measure. Quality of life you really can't measure. You can get proxies for it, but physics you can, you can, you can measure energy, you can measure momentum, you can measure mass, you can measure all those kinds of things. Uh, economists have lots of numbers, but they're all approximations.